we certainly are in the presence of our God, are we not? And he is a great and awesome God, and he is the heart of worship. We are in James chapter 1. One of the first competencies that we articulate as a congregation is that we worship with our lives. That is, 24-7, we do worship. James, Pastor James, is concerned about the 24-7 life of the follower of Jesus, the person who claims to be trusting in Him. And in verse 19 of chapter 1, he begins a most important text. He says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. They say now there are 350 of these signs dotting the landscape of New Orleans tacked on electric poles and telephone poles and other public signs and all the sign says is love. Have any of you seen the sign? All right, several of you have. A couple of anonymous men in the community decided they needed to put this up to try to spur an attitude of love in the community. I appreciate that. I was startled to read that a man was murdered on the down ramp at Franklin Avenue off to 610 Friday morning. I passed through that intersection Friday morning and realized this morning I came through just after a man had been riddled with bullets in that intersection. There's behavior and there's faith. There are people who say they believe And there are people who actually follow through. And sometimes there's a disconnect between who we say we are 
and how we behave. And James jumps right into the main point in this letter. Without any of the niceties that sometimes accompany letters like from the Apostle Paul, he begins immediately to talk about the persecutions and the troubles that come our way. And when we get to this passage here in chapter 1, he is writing in the context of the troubles that sometimes we use to excuse bad behavior. And he says to us, there is a behavior that gets rid of some things. The behavior that faith gets rid of, he recounts here in these verses. And he begins with anger which always makes me a little uncomfortable. I feel like I'm meddling when I talk about anger because all of us get angry sometimes. And James knows all the nuances about anger. He knows about righteous indignation. He knows the wrath of God. And yet he says to us, get rid of all Anger. He does it without stuttering. He just says, get rid of all anger. Anger becomes a way to live in the world. It becomes for some people a theme, a stream in their personality and their actions. Sometimes we suppose that anger actually defines us and we may say to somebody who objects well that's just who I am and we need to start learning and stop living in self-deception that's not just who you are that's who you choose to be and the pastor James is saying to his people get rid of it Get rid of your anger. It may be very useful to you. You may suppose that anger is how you can manipulate the behavior of other people. It's how you get things done in your business or wherever you interact with people. But James is saying, and the Word of God is saying, get rid of all anger. Sometimes you suppose that your anger is right. And you may even say it, I have a right to be angry. I am right in my anger, but I want you to find the word right embedded in this text. And you will find it where he says, get rid of all anger. Because human anger does not produce the right. It does not produce the righteousness that God desires. You see that? Human anger does not produce the right that God desires. It doesn't produce the righteousness that God desires. Even though you say, I am justified in my anger. Now, I want to tell you about the justification for your anger, okay? It is not God's righteousness. Therefore, it is your self-justification 
that makes that anger right in your mind. Because anger does not produce the right that God requires. That's right here in the text. So it must be self-righteousness that you are speaking and in your mind defending about this anger that bubbles out of you. And self-righteousness removes you even further from the God you say you worship. It's all about him, not about you. And self-righteousness is a barrier the most common barrier between you and God. If 24-7 worship of the Almighty is all about Him, then put away, get rid of all anger because it does not produce the right that God desires in you. You know it's doing the opposite. It's killing the things you say you love. It's hurting the people you say you love. When that anger bubbles out and bursts forth, it is usually at the people closest to you. And that's a sad thing. You go on the family outing, you go on the family vacation, something happens that does not deserve to be so poisonous. You go up when you should have gone down. You go right when you should have gone left. And it breaks in you and you explode. And suddenly this event that should have been full of love and harmony is now full of tension and anger. And you have spoiled and killed something that is precious. Precious moments you get to spend with your family. Suddenly set aside. Why? Because of something that really in the end doesn't matter anyway. And when you respond to something in your life over the top and upon reflection you look back and say, that should never have caused me to be broken that way. It should, I don't know where that came from. Just mark it down, brother. Sister, you've got an anger seething in your soul that is ungodly and poisonous and it's touching the most precious things in your life and you, my friend, need to get rid of it. Will you do it? Will you get rid of it? Or is it too useful to you? Is it too precious to you? Have you been angry so long you can't see yourself without it? It's time to get rid of it. And if you can't get rid of it or won't get rid of it, what does that say about your religion? There are some things, some behaviors that true faith gets rid of. And James chooses to lead with anger. Get rid of it. He includes anger in his next term, moral filth. Get rid of all moral filth. When I think about filth, 
I don't think about a few clothes on the floor or some towels on the counter. Do you? When I think about filth, I think about something that is really nasty, stinky, awful stuff. When he uses the term moral filth, he's including the nasty, stinky, awful thing of anger. But he's also including other things that come to mind. And if there are behaviors in your life which you know are filthy to the God who created you, that moral filth has got to go. You've got to get rid of that moral filth. Now, the Holy Spirit has a way of identifying that in the life of the believer, even as the Word is preached. So, if the Holy Spirit is bringing a practice to your mind, a way of behaving, a way of talking, a way of relating to somebody in the world, and that behavior's there, and you're thinking, you know what? That's really filthy. Mark it down. God is doing his work in you, and maybe you're sitting in this room so that the Holy Spirit could identify that in you and say to you, get rid of it. He also includes the evil that is so prevalent. Get rid of the moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. So as a believer in the 21st century, I realize that even in the 1st century, when James wrote this letter, there were things in the culture and the society that lots of people were saying, that's okay. And you might have been able to say, everybody's doing it. But it's not something that I can do, even though it's an evil that is prevalent. It's not something I can do because I am a believer in Jesus. And this is a behavior that faith gets rid of. Now, there's another behavior that faith gets rid of. And that's the behavior that hears without doing faith gets rid of such a behavior that hears the word and does not do it James says here that to hear the word and not do it is to deceive yourself that's self deception and he says here that if somebody claims to be religious but does not bridle their tongue that religion is what in the text it's worthless it's worthless religion so there are some things that faith gets rid of and some behavior that faith takes hold of and faith takes hold of doing what we say we believe. James says here, we look in the mirror and walk away and forget what we just saw. That's why we're so shocked when we see pictures of ourselves. I look at a picture of myself and say, who is that old man? Whoa, that's me? 
man, I didn't know I looked like that. Do you ever do that? I don't know how or why, but my brain photoshops me. <laughs> yeah. In my mind, I am 34 with a full head of hair. Something, it photoshops me. And we do that to ourselves. And James says, look, gaze into the word like you look into a mirror. Remember what you see and conform your life to the image of Christ. He talks about looking into the perfect law that brings freedom. And I love that phrase, the perfect law that brings freedom. I visited with a prisoner this week who's been in for a while. And I don't know how, but through the glass, we touched on this idea of law. And he said, you know, being in here for the last months has made me appreciate the law. And I talk to other prisoners about it. Understand why we have laws and why we enforce them much more than I used to. He said, but you got to be careful in here in the big house. Because not everybody in the big house appreciates the law. And that's true. Some of them hate the law, and they hate the law enforcer, and they think they've been put upon by the law. And I don't know. Maybe they've been mistreated. But the perfect law brings liberty. You see that? Now, those two things, law and liberty, may be intention in your mind. And you may suppose that to live under law is to be without liberty. Some people think that, and they believe you have taken their liberty if they can't have what they want or do what they want. And so the law to them is the enemy of liberty. But here's the truth of the matter, okay? The truth of the matter is there is no liberty without law because everything descends into chaos if there's no law. If every man does what is right in his own eyes, that's called anarchy and that's a scary, fearful, unproductive place to be. You don't want to be there. So law are the parameters under which we express our liberty. Do you know that the founding fathers understood law very well? And they accused the authority, England, of lawlessness, of itself breaking the law, of taxation without representation. And they declared their liberty from that authority on the basis of law. The perfect law is perfectly compatible with true liberty. In the heart of God, there is no conflict between law and liberty. He understands them perfectly well, unlike us, and expresses them beautifully together. If we gaze into the perfect law and do what it says, it will deliver to us
a liberty we have never experienced before. It is the law of Christ, this perfect law. And the Son of God said, If the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. What God does with his perfect law in you is he gives you the parameters in which you will flourish to the maximum extent. Here, in the parameters and boundaries of the perfect law, you become the person he has called you to be. He, you reach your maximum potential in the confines of the perfect law that God gives. This is the place where you manifest and exercise and enjoy your freedom. And if you live in the perfect law, you will soar like an eagle. It delivers to you freedom. Anytime we break the perfect law, it delivers to us death. When sin finally comes to its fruition, it brings death, not liberty, not life like we thought it would, like the devil told us it would. There is a behavior that faith gets rid of and a behavior that faith takes hold of. Living a life within the parameters of the perfect law, which is Christ himself, which is manifest in the character, person, words, and deeds of the Lord Jesus. There is a behavior that authenticates faith. It accompanies faith, and it authenticates faith. To hear without doing, that is a worthless religion. James says if a man claims to be religious and yet doesn't bridle his tongue, his religion is worthless. I suppose he's talking about worshipers somewhere besides his own church there in Jerusalem. Maybe he's just heard about this behavior somewhere and thought he might need to address it. But he addresses it with such emotion, I suppose. I mean, he uses such strong language, doesn't he? I suppose that James, Pastor James, at the First Church of Jerusalem, has actually seen with his own eyes, in his own congregation, a worthless religion. I expect that he's seen it right there in his church. Thank God that was the first century and not the 21st, right? Because we don't have any worthless religion here, do we? Or maybe we do. Maybe the letter's written to us for us to take a look at it and say, is my religion the worthless kind? He says it's the worthless religion that never learns how to bridle the tongue. And there I hear echoes of his talk about anger, worthless religion that always spouts off, that always bubbles up, that always bursts forth in anger. It never gets the tongue bridled. See, anger makes it hard to listen. Anger makes you quit, speak too fast. If you could suck those words back in, you would. That Worthless religion does not have the power to bridle the tongue, to bring it into submission to the law of Christ. 
James says here, there's a worthless religion practiced by some people even who claim to be Christians. And you think, well, wait a minute. Faith in Christ saves a soul. If faith in Christ makes you a child of God and gives you a home in heaven, surely it's not worthless. It's of infinite worth whether or not it changes your behavior toward orphans and widows, right? James is saying a true faith in Christ not only gives you a home in heaven, it changes the way you treat orphans and widows. And if it doesn't change the way you treat the needy and the powerless and the vulnerable in the circle of your life, it's not faith in Christ that you got. I don't know what you got, but it don't look like Jesus to me. Can you take this? What we love about Jesus is that he he was no respecter of persons. What endears him to our heart is that he he forgives people and he, he touches the lepers and he cares about them. What we love about Jesus is how he interacts with the vulnerable and the helpless and the hurting. That's what we love about Jesus. And if we're not doing that ourselves, it's not Jesus we're following. It's somebody else. See, true religion in Jesus, the kind that God accepts, has this heart for the fatherless and the widow, the hurting, and the hungry. And if that's not you, what religion is that that you got? That's what James is saying in this passage, that faith in Christ not only changes your head and your heart, it changes your hand and your feet and looking into your head and heart is hard to do but seeing how your hands and feet have changed that's easy and so a world that looks on and wonders if you're really following Jesus the evidence they have is your hands and your feet and your behavior in the world and you look most like Jesus when you stop to help the man who is fallen. The truth is, the Savior is calling us to this life that pours out on behalf of the other. He is saying to us, trusting God means your life 24-7 is all about him. He's calling us to this radical laying down of ourselves, burying of our life in order that we might take it up again anew and afresh, transformed and full of power because it is his life 
that we take up. The Holy Spirit might just be saying, look at that behavior. Look at that anger. Look at those hands and those feet. Does it look like Jesus? Is it behavior expressed in faith? Bow with me, please. Maybe today, once again, it's a very personal response that the Holy Spirit is prompting you toward. He is speaking to you and, and asking you for a change in the way you talk, the way you act. He's asking you to get rid of the anger, the moral filth, the evil that's prevalent so much around us. He's asking you to take hold of a faith that works, a faith that lives, a faith that behaves in the world like Jesus. Maybe he's calling you to faith in Christ. Maybe you've never fully committed your life unto Christ, and this is the day to do that. Maybe you've been standing a, a long ways off from Jesus and his church, and the Holy Spirit is calling you back to the middle. Maybe to become part of this congregation. You can do that at this time as well. Lord, have your way in us so that we can be all you've called us to be and made us to be and want us to be and all that we in our heart of hearts long to be. God, have your way with us. In this moment of response, we pray in Jesus' name.